Hi, thanks for joining us for our podcast. In this session, we're going to cover the occurrence of nuchal cords. Are they benign or are they guilty of causing adverse perinatal outcomes? Look, I think we've all had the experience of delivering a child with a loose nuchal cord. And I think intuitively we can all agree that we suppose that a tight nuchal cord is much different in perinatal outcome than a loose nuchal cord. But is this true? What does the data show? In this episode, we will review this data and we have lots to cover. So let's get started now. The constitutional tissues of umbilical cord include an outer layer of amnion and inner porous Wharton's jelly, two umbilical arteries, and one umbilical vein. On average, umbilical cords are about 45 to 55 centimeters long, with a diameter of 1 to 2 centimeters, and on average, about 11 helical twists, but diameters up to 3 centimeters and helixes as many as 380 per cord have also been described presence of short umbilical cords seems to double or triple the predictive values of low APGAR scores, low IQ scores, and neurological abnormalities and even stillbirths. Now, ironically, Nay et al. also showed that long cords defined as greater than 70 centimeters also have poor fetal outcomes, including higher fetal entanglements true knots, and they are more prone to umbilical cord torsions. So, regarding umbilical cord length, it seems that being too short or being too long both have their issues. In 1962, J. Selwyn Crawford defined a nuchal cord as a 360-degree wrap around the fetal neck. But even Hippocrates, back in 370 BC, had a commentary on nuchal cords. In one of his writings, he wrote that it was a danger of the eighth month of pregnancy, stating that a nuchal cord persisting until term, quote, will cause suffering to the mother and either perish the child or have the child born with birth difficulties, end quote. But, however, the implications of nuchal cords are still controversial. Several studies have noted an association between nuchal cords and adverse perinatal outcomes, including stillbirth. Now, we'll cover that a little bit later on in this session. But others note that umbilical cord compression due to tight nuchal cords could be an incidental finding that is seldom associated with perinatal morbidity. We'll get into the pathophysiology to explain these conflicting viewpoints again a little bit later in this session. What do we know about the incidence of nuchal cords? Data confirms that nuchal cords tend to increase in frequency as the pregnancy progresses. Larson et al. reported that the overall incidence of nuchal cords was about 6% at 20 weeks, but increased to 29% by 42 weeks. Now, the presence of multiple nuchal cords, that was defined as two or more loops around the fetal neck, is estimated to affect between 2 and 8% of all pregnancies. When we come back, let's touch on the pathophysiology of fetal nuchal cords.
If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Before we get into the specific pathophysiology of nuchal cord accidents, first, a reminder, nuchal cord is a common finding and the vast majority of term deliveries with nuchal cords have normal outcomes. However, nuchal cord associated fetal morbidity is closely correlated to the number of nuchal cords and the degree of strangulation or tightness that they have. With tight nuchal cords, the umbilical vein, which delivers blood to the child is the most easily compressed and compromised while blood continues to be delivered away from the child through the more rigid and muscular umbilical arteries. The effect is a functional hypovolemia in the fetus. Hypotension and fetal hypoxia may also result. Physically, on the child, nuchal cords, especially when tightly wrapped, seem to have some physical, similar features as those seen in strangulations. They include duskiness of the fetal face, facial petechiae, and conjunctival hemorrhages. Proposed and likely pathophysiological changes that cause this are fetal vagal collapse, resulting from pressure to the carotid sinuses and increased parasympathetic tone. This also likely explains why many infants with nuchal cords pass meconium, which again could be a signal of vagal collapse. Now, some authors have suggested that nuchal cords may not significantly increase the risk of acute or labor-associated fetal hypoxia, but are an independent risk factor of mild, chronic, pre-labor fetal hypoxia due to its pre-labor occurrence. In other words, this may not have an issue intrapartum, but because nuchal cords happen before labor, their onset of this strangulation phenomenon could actually predate labor. Now, this was first published by Hashimoto in 2003 using erythropoietin levels in the umbilical cord and in the amniotic fluid as markers of both acute and chronic fetal hypoxia. What Hashimoto found is that the erythropoietin levels in babies that were found to have nuchal cords showed more evidence of chronic fetal hypoxia than acute hypoxia. Now, as for newborn assessment, data indicate that APGAR scores are not a sensitive indicator of acid-based changes in nuchal cord infants, so a significant umbilical arterial acidosis can occur in nuchal cord infants even in the setting of normal or near-normal APGARs. So it's been proposed by published authors that umbilical cord gas analysis be obtained in all children with nuchal cords, especially if they are multiple or tight. Published authors have found that infants with nuchal cords had significantly lower pH, lower oxygen content, and higher PCO2 levels in their arterial cord gases than in those infants who did not have tight nuchal cords. Also, the veno-arterial difference in pH and PCO2 of the infants with nuchal cords were greater than that of infants with no nuchal cords, again signifying some degree of hypoxia and possibly ischemia. 
Of course, the most dreaded outcome of a nuchal cord is the possibility of a cord accident leading to a stillbirth. It's been published that as much as 20% of stillbirths at autopsy are due to fatal compromise of umbilical circulation. Now, it's been published and authors have proposed a defined minimal histological criteria that can be used to explain or verify a cord accident or this strangulation phenomenon, according to published authors. This minimal histological criteria, suggestive of cord accidents, can be a vascular ectasia with thrombosis within the umbilical cord. This would reflect umbilical cord stasis, which of course can be due to a cord accident or a nuchal cord. There's also thrombosis in the chorionic plate and or the stem villi. But the most important histological change that supports the diagnosis of a cord accident is vascular ectasia with a thrombosis within the umbilical cord. Now, regarding diagnosis, of course, most nuchal cords are found, obviously, at time of delivery. But one of the causes of variable decelerations in antenatal fetal heart rate monitoring is a nuchal cord. Nuchal cords can be diagnosed additionally by ultrasound. It's been shown that ultrasound can predict a nuchal cord presence with the use of colored Doppler imaging. Now, it's been published that colored Doppler imaging can correctly identify 72% of single and up to 94% of multiple nuchal cords, with the greatest sensitivity being after 36 weeks. A positive ultrasound test would, of course, be an indication for close electronic fetal monitoring during labor, and it can help aid the clinician in reducing attempts at amnu infusion since amnu infusion will not resolve variable decelerations due to nuchal cord presence. In terms of prognosis, of course, patients often ask, what is the long-term outcome if their child was found to have a nuchal cord? Well, due to its common occurrence, its mostly benign nature, and its multifactorial causality, and because there's lack of clear guidance towards management, the long-term neurological injury secondary to nuchal cords has actually been debated. While some studies published on neonatal outcome include fetal demise, which we've just talked about, and possible neurological impairments, the vast majority of studies have shown no long-term neurodevelopmental impairment. Now, according to ACOG, long-term outcomes associated with nuchal cord like cerebral palsy just have very conflicting data. ACOG's summary on neonatal encephalopathy and neurological outcome notes that children of 190 women with clinically normal antepartum courses were studied using the Bailey scales of infant development. A symptomatic nuchal cord during labor, that was a nuchal cord with an abnormal fetal heart rate tracing intrapartum or with meconium, was present in 24% of the 190 cases. At one year of age, Bailey scores were slightly but significantly lower in those offsprings that had a symptomatic nuchal cord, and they were lower still when that symptomatic case also had extreme cord tightness, multiple loops, or antenatal diagnosis of nuchal cord. 
However, remember, this was only 190 women, and ACOG states that more data is necessary in terms of long-term, potentially harmful, prognosis. However, nuchal cords that have associated umbilical vessel thrombosis, like we discussed previously, may indeed be linked to poorer neurodevelopmental outcomes. Fetal thrombotic vasculopathy associated with obstructive lesions of the umbilical cord that can also be seen in extreme cord coiling or even hypocoiling and cord compression. This is highly associated with neonatal encephalopathy as well as cerebral palsy, and that's according to the college. Look, as we wrap up this podcast, remember that nuchal cords are a potential cause for perinatal distress and a rarely significant risk factor for long-term neurodevelopmental consequences. Most are incidental findings, especially if it's single and loose. As conservative management, clinicians should consider sending the placenta to pathology for histological evaluation as well as obtaining umbilical arterial blood gases, especially in cases of tight nuchal cords. But remember, multiple and or tight cords with associated vascular thrombosis may indeed be associated with poor long-term neurodevelopmental outcomes and in extreme cases, fetal death. Thankfully, this doesn't happen very frequently. Data for this podcast came from a review of nucocord and its implications from the Journal of Maternal Health, Neonatology, and Perinatology from December 2017. The chief author was PESI. Data also came from ACOG's executive summary on neonatal encephalopathy and neurological outcome. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on Clinical Pearls. <music>